All right. Open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. You're going to be on page uh, 1037 again if you have one of the Bibles from the welcome table. We're going to look at the first half of the chapter today, verses 1 through 13. I love this passage because it's, um, it, it seems kind of like a, like a tangent or like a, like a pause in what's going on here, but it's a reminder to us that, that we're not reading some formal article in a theological journal or we're not reading somebody's thesis for their PhD that they've uh, put together. We're reading somebody's mail, right? We're, we're reading a letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of Gentile believers in order to encourage them in their faith. This is a personal communication from Paul to, these, uh, to the Ephesian church and the surrounding churches. And, and while Paul often dictated his words to a scribe who wrote them down for him, this passage is a reminder that they are, in fact, Paul's words and that he has personal concern for his readers. Now, this letter certainly has some formal structure to it that's helpful for us in understanding Paul's flow of thought, like, like the first half that we're in is all about the doctrine of the gospel, and, and the second half, which will start in chapter 4, is all about the application of the gospel in the church. Um, and so that's helpful for us to keep in mind as we go through it. But, but I love this, this passage because right in the middle of Paul's flow of thought, he interrupts himself. He starts into this thought, and he's like, wait, hold on a second. I need to make sure you realize something. And he dictate, as, he, as he's dictating to the scribe, he, he, he pauses, and he, and, he, and he moves into this other thought because he feels the need to clarify this thing for his readers. He's going to start a prayer in verse 1 that he pauses and then doesn't pick back up until verse 14. They both start with the same phrase. That, the the, 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 the Prayer at the end of the chapter is the prayer he was going to start with, but in the middle of that, he leaves it unfinished, and in between, he's going to tell his readers about the ministry that God gave him to take the gospel to them, and his willingness then to suffer for their sake. So as we work our way through Paul's letter, uh, his, his little tangent in his letter this morning, my hope is that it encourages us to see how God's grace to Paul has led the gospel to reach us. And it'll challenge us then also to think about how God's grace to us leads us to take the gospel to others, okay? So I want to read it. I want to ask God for insight, and we'll dig in. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly mentioned above. By reading this, you're able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and, par and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may, be, may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. 
So then I ask you, do not be incur- uh, not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your living, enduring word that is able to uh, penetrate and divide joint and marrow and expose the thoughts of our hearts and comfort us with the mind of God through the Spirit. We pray this morning that you would do all of those things, that you would draw us into a greater sense of confidence in Christ as believers. And if anyone is in here or online that uh, has yet to put their faith in you, I pray that today through your word they would be convinced both of their need for you and of Christ's power to bring them into the kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think sometimes there's a, there's a disconnect when we read uh, even like a passage like this where, where we're sort of observing. Like I said, we're reading somebody else's mail, right? It's not written to us, but we, but we need to understand that, that it's written for us. We, we are, we're, um, we're not just observers in what, uh, what God has put down in his word through people like Paul and other authors Um, but the task for us is always to find the meaning of the text and then apply that meaning to our current life. That's why we have this this mission statement of uh, bringing glory to Jesus by uh, helping each other connect the realities of the gospel with the realities of our lives. The realities of the gospel don't change. The realities of our lives do over the course of, of time and history, right? And so for us today, we don't face the same exact things that the Gentile readers were facing back then, and yet the mystery, the good news of the gospel that came to them is the same good news that came to us, and now we share in the kingdom with them, right? So it's, it's helpful for us to think about not just Paul writing a letter to the Ephesians, but how that, that letter fits into the, the overall story of Scripture itself from Genesis to Revelation. And not just that story of Scripture, but, but how all of the whole story of Scripture, how the, the whole, all 66 books, unfold God's plan of redemption that was revealed over time in different ways throughout the course of history. And now, how we in the 21st century can be confident that we share equally in the kingdom with those who believed in the first century and those who believed before they even knew of Christ, like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? And so we need to understand the overarching theme. And, and uh, this morning, um, I think we're going to get insight into that. And, and really, for, for our our sort of main thought is, is this, is that because we equally share in the blessings of Christ, we must equally share in the mission of Christ. There, there's, a, there's a mystery to the gospel that's been revealed that leads us to ministry of the gospel. And then that magnifies the multifaceted wisdom of the gospel giver. And so this is what we're going to see as we work our way through the passage this morning. Look at verse 1. The mystery of the gospel For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave me to me for you? 
I love this. Paul, he, he starts in on another prayer, right? He closed out chapter one with the, that section with the prayer. He was going to close out chapter two with a, with a, a prayer. Remember the chapter headings and, and verses and all of that uh, weren't original to Paul. And so he's, he's just thinking through these sections. He's going to close this one out with a prayer as he's uh, shared with the Gentiles the, the wonderful uh, gift of God's grace through faith in Christ. And, and, and in the middle of that, he calls himself this, the, the prisoner of Christ. And immediately that triggers him to go, wait, hold on a second. I need to explain this. And so he talks, he goes in and he, and he, uh, uh, he, he wants them to understand that, that his afflictions, that, it, that he's in a Roman prison. He, and his, his afflictions are a result of the commissioning that he received from God to make the mystery of the gospel known to the Gentiles. And because God commissioned him for this, he will gladly suffer for their sake. In fact, even though Paul is a Roman prisoner, he's in Rome, in, in a prison there, while he writes this letter, he doesn't call himself, a, a, Paul, a prisoner of Rome. What does he call himself? A prisoner of Christ. He knows that ultimately Rome doesn't have the final authority over him. Christ does. Paul knows that he's not being punished by God because of sin. His imprisonment is actually a confirmation of his obedience to Christ and an affirmation of his apostleship to the Gentiles. You can read about this, how he got to Rome. You can read about that whole story in the last eight chapters of the book of Acts. Paul came back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey to the Gentile regions, and he brought with him the the offerings from the Gentile churches, and he went into the temple for purification, and while he was there, some Jews from the province of Asia, remember this is where Ephesus is, in the province of Asia, some Jews from that region were also there, and, and they stirred up the crowd to seize Paul, and they accused him of teaching against the Jews and their customs everywhere he went, which was true in a sense, right? He preached that Jesus had broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. We saw that in chapter 2, and now both are one in Christ. But then they also accused him of bringing Greeks into the temple, like physically bringing them past that wall of hostility that we talked about uh, last week, which is a false accusation. Paul never brought Greeks into the temple where only Jews were allowed. But these Jews were clearly hostile toward Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles, and they wanted to stop this ministry any way they could. And then that led to his arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem, which then led to his transfer to Caesarea, where he appealed then to Caesar, and finally to his transfer to Rome, where he's imprisoned while he awaits appeal to Nero. And this is where he's at, in a Roman prison, while he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. When Paul met with the Ephesian elders on his way back to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey, he said this to them in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. He said, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, which we learn about in the the following chapters, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. This doesn't sound exciting. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the grace, to the gospel of God's grace. This is why Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. But do you remember how he opened his letter? He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. 
Paul's a willing prisoner for the sake of Christ, but Paul didn't come up with his own ministry work. He received it. He was sent by Christ as an, exa- as a, as an apostle to the Gentiles. God revealed his administration of grace for the Gentiles and gave Paul the task of telling them about it, along with other apostles and prophets that we've, we saw him mention in chapter 2. And what is this administration of grace that God has for the Gentiles? Paul calls it a mystery. Look at verse 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you're able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here's the mystery. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I've always been a fan of mysteries. I love playing Clue. I love, I love reading mystery novels. I told uh, Bree, my wife, that uh, if I wasn't a pastor, I probably would have been a detective. I love gathering clues. I love trying to solve uh, things. I watched Unsolved Mysteries when I was a kid growing up, right? And I always wanted to figure out why they couldn't figure it out. Um, but that's not the way Paul uses uh, the word mystery here. We typically use it in terms of, of something that's difficult to understand or explain, but that we attempt to figure out on our own, right? We see a mystery as something for us to solve. But Paul sees a mystery as something that we can never know, something that we can never solve on our own. He sees it as something that must be revealed to us by God. We can't know it otherwise, Until God makes it known, it's unknowable to us. This is what Paul means by mystery. It's hidden until God reveals it. So what's the mystery that God's revealed to Paul? It's verse 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now this doesn't really seem like new information to us at this point, right? Paul even mentions that, that he's briefly written about it in Uh, Earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he wrote, God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time, to bring everything together, to unite everything in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In the second half of of chapter 2, he wrote about how God brought Jew and Gentile together as one body in Christ through the gospel. He talked about how the Gentiles at one time were without Christ, how they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, how they were foreigners to the covenants of of the promise without hope and without God in the world. And now he writes that the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, for us to truly grasp the significance of what Paul's saying here, we need to understand We need to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to one another in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. There's two ways we need to think about it, okay? We just had Christmas about a week ago. Surely, or or chances are that you probably got somebody a gift, okay? And even if you didn't, let's say you did. Maybe you got that gift weeks or or months in advance, uh, and you started dropping hints to that person about what you got for him or her. And you're like, I got you the perfect thing. I finally found it, right? It's going to be perfect for your office. It's exactly what you need. 
Or, or you say something like, I, I know how much you love music, so I got you uh, a, a, an album from, from one of your favorite artists. Now you're saying these things, and you're promising something beforehand, and then you're fulfilling it when the time comes, right? You haven't uh, told that person everything about the gift, but you've given him or her enough information that he or she could be excited about the gift and, and, and start to anticipate the coming of Christmas to receive it, right? Or the other option is to get the gift but keep it hidden and don't say anything about it until Christmas Day, until it's time to give it to that person. It's still the perfect gift, but the person you got it for isn't anticipating it because you haven't given him or her any hints ahead of time. You haven't revealed to that person what you're getting. The Old Testament and the New Testament take both of these approaches when it comes to the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. God fulfills in the New Testament what he promises in the Old Testament. And God reveals in the New Testament what he hides in the Old Testament. And sometimes he does both at the same time. Sometimes there's a gift hidden inside the gift that's promised. The Old Testament is full of God's promises that the Gentiles would be blessed through Israel and that salvation would come to the Gentiles as well. This is clear in the, in the Old Testament. There's plenty of examples to look back on and see that. It's always been God's plan to include the Gentiles. But now those prom- and, and now those promises are fulfilled through Christ who is the true Israel of God and the Savior of the world. But the Old Testament never revealed that the blessing that the Gentiles would receive was the privilege of being joined together, here it is, as equals with the Jews in Christ. Remember, in the, in the Old Testament, Gentiles had to become Jews. They, they had to be proselytes, Jewish proselytes, in order to take part in the blessings of the people of God, but not in the New Testament. Not when the gospel comes. Instead, through Christ, the two would be united together in one new body, as Paul described in chapter 2. Here in verse 6 of chapter 3, Paul emphasizes that unity by using a Greek prefix that means together in all of the things that he's describing. He says the Gentiles are co-heirs together with the Jews. They're members together of the same body. They're, They're partners together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And this togetherness that was once hidden in the Old Testament is now revealed in the, New, in the New Testament through the gospel. God didn't make this known to people in other generations, Paul says, but he has now revealed it by his spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that have laid the foundation for the New Testament church by bringing this gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles and the Jews are equal in Christ. This is a huge, huge deal. And Paul says that that his readers are now able to understand his insight into this wonderful mystery as they read this letter out loud in their church gathering. Now, I say this is a huge, huge deal. But for us, this doesn't necessarily seem like like a big deal, right? Because we're about 2,000 years removed from the hostile Jew-Gentile divide of the Old Testament and of Paul's day. The very basic division between humanity was Jew and Gentile. 
But as Christians living in America in 2020, we do understand the importance of equality as well as the need to root the ultimate expression of it in Christ and our shared identity in Him. The gospel makes clear that no one can recreate themselves. No one gets to, 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 to define their identity as, as people who've been created. But the gospel also makes clear that everyone who has been recreated in Christ equally shares in every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. And so we always need to guard against looking at a, a brother or sister in Christ for who they once were rather than enjoying who we are now together in Christ. Here's a thought. If Kim Jong-un came to faith in Christ, would you view him the same as you view yourself? How about the person who wants to find himself or herself according to the sexual revolution that's going on, but, but now has found his or her true identity in Christ? How would you view that person? Or the person with opposite political views as you? Or the person with a different skin color than you? Or the person that's not originally from a nunk? There are a myriad of subtle ways that we can talk ourselves into believing that we are just a little bit closer to Jesus than, than other people are. But the reality is that we were once far and now we've been brought near. How? Not by our own merits or efforts, not by our former way of life, but by Christ himself. And all who are in Christ now stand on level ground together as equals in the family of God. This is the mystery that was once hidden by God but is now revealed to us in Jesus. Insight into this mystery of the gospel ought to then lead us to ministry of the gospel. It did for Paul. Look at verse 7. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable, incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Even as Paul explains the mystery that God revealed to him, he does so with a tremendous amount of humility, right? What does he call himself? He calls himself a, a servant of this gospel, he doesn't elevate himself over his readers as an apostle, even though he introduced himself to them that way as in the letter. Because it's not a position that he gave himself. It's a position that he was given to by Christ. He recognizes that God's grace and God's power revealed this mystery of the gospel to him. And God's grace and God's power have made him a servant and a steward of this mystery in order to make it known to the Gentiles. I love it. He calls himself the least of all the saints. Not the least of all the leaders in the church. Not the least of all the, 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 the elite group. But the least of all believers. Paul knows that he's a recipient of God's grace and power because he knows what he used to be. He puts it this way in his first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to ministry, to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. 
But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he calls himself the least of all the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. When Paul calls himself the least of all the saints here in verse 8, the word he uses for least literally means less than the least. It's like you can't get any lower, but he goes lower. It means the least most. Paul puts himself far below even the Gentile believers so that he can elevate Christ far above everyone and his work and his power. How? By proclaiming to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and by shedding light for all, both Jew and Gentile, about God's plan of redemption. By God's grace and by God's grace alone, Paul went from persecutor to proclaimer. He was a Jewish Pharisee who hated the Gentiles and now he's a Christian who invites them into equal fellowship with Christ through the gospel. And now he's being persecuted by Jews because of it. Paul's in a Roman prison not because Rome put him there. He's in a Roman prison because the Jews put him there. But he's more than willing to endure any and every affliction if it means that he can finish his course in the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace and reveal this mystery to others. Paul spent the first two chapters of this letter proclaiming to the Gentile believers the incalculable riches of Christ. In chapter 1, he says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Chapter two, he says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display what? The immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The riches of Christ are immeasurable. They're incalculable, as Paul says in verse eight here of chapter three. The Greek word he uses gives this picture of something that's impossible to plot or trace or travel to the end of. I love that mental picture. The, the course of this world has an end point, right? We know this from chapter 2. It has a destination. And that destination is, a, is spiritual death and the eternal wrath of God against sinners because of their sin. If you reject Christ, you can trace the path that you're on. You can follow it all the way to the end. The Bible plots it out for you by pointing out that the ways of this world and the fleshly desires of our heart lead to death. And if you continue to travel along that way, you'll come to the end of it and find eternal condemnation and punishment from God, that you, the, the God that you've rejected. But praise God that there is a different way, right? There's redemption through Christ's blood and the forgiveness of your sins and trespasses. You can be reconciled to God and reconciled to people according to the incalculable riches of God's grace to you in Christ through faith in him 
and his sacrificial death on the cross in your place. And you can be raised with the resurrected Christ to walk on the inexhaustible path of God's grace through his kindness to you in Christ. We need to understand that even the smallest sin puts us immediately on the course to eternal judgment. But we also need to understand, and this is the beauty of the mystery, that there's no amount of sin that can outplot the grace of God available to you in Jesus Christ. There's no road of rebellion that you've traveled on that God's grace won't travel infinitely farther if you turn to Jesus in faith. Yes, you'll still come to physical death at the end of this life, but you'll awake to spend an eternity tracing the incalculable riches of his grace without ever coming to the end. That is beautiful. The mystery of the gospel is that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done. God is able to rescue you and redeem you by the working of his power and unite you to himself as an equal co-heir together, as an equal member of the same body together, as an equal partner together in the promise in Christ Jesus with the people that he's rescued and redeemed from every tribe, every tongue, every nation all across the world and throughout the course of history. From every walk of life. But rescue and redemption only comes to those who understand their need for it and, they, and cry out to Jesus in faith. And this understanding, this, this, this coming to that conclusion that I need Christ is a gift itself of grace from God. So if you're aware of your need to be forgiven, then you're getting a glimpse already of the incalculable riches of Christ. And that's just the beginning. And so if you're in here or you're on Zoom this morning and you haven't trusted in him, respond to him in faith and spend eternity, all eternity, unending marveling at the immeasurable riches of God's grace to us through his kindness in Christ. This is what awaits all those who come to Christ in faith because the God who created this plan of redemption is the God who created all things. And it's as the sovereign creator that he will guarantee that his plan of redemption unfolds according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ before he set the foundation of the world in place. God revealed the mystery of the gospel and commissioned Paul and us with the ministry of the gospel so that he could reveal his multifaceted wisdom as the gospel giver. Look at verse 10. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. God made the mystery of the gospel known to Paul. Paul made the mystery of the gospel known to the Gentiles. And even though his ministry was specifically to the Gentiles, Paul took every opportunity he could to shed light to the Jews as well about the mystery of the gospel. Because if the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be reconciled into one man under Christ, they both need to understand that, right? Now the Jews and the Gentiles are united together as one body uh, of Christ in the church and through the church now. Paul says that God is making his multifaceted wisdom known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavens. 
Now, the Greek term that Paul uses to describe God's wisdom is multifaceted. It's not used anywhere else in, in, in all of Scripture. It's only used right here in the Bible. It means to be varied beyond measure and in a way which surpasses all previous knowledge thereof. It's like a diamond with an infinite number of facets that each reflect the majestic beauty of God's immeasurable wisdom. doesn't matter how often you turn it or, or when or where you turn it. You'll never exhaust the wisdom of God as each facet reflects it. But what about these rulers and authorities in the heavens? Well, Paul probably has the evil powers in the heavens in mind here in verse 10 since he uses the same phrase elsewhere in the letter to refer to them. We've already seen that in chapter 1. We'll see it again in chapter 6. But he's not saying that the church is supposed to evangelize demons. Instead, the church displays the multifaceted wisdom of God as a banner of victory over the rulers and authorities in the heavens through the uniting of Jew and Gentile together as one body with Christ as the head. The evil spiritual powers knew what was in the Old Testament. They were familiar with the promises of God to the people of Israel. They knew about the promised Messiah, but the mystery of the gospel that was hidden to all in the New Testament was also hidden to them until God revealed it. They didn't realize that the very thing that they thought would bring them victory was the ultimate thing that brought their defeat. When Christ died, they thought they had won. But when he rose from the grave, the wisdom of God's plan of redemption was made clear and their defeat was sealed as Christ walked out of the tomb. Remember what Paul said at the end of chapter one. The Father exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Where? Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ is supreme. And he subjected everything under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, every time someone from anywhere in the world is redeemed by Christ, and reconciled to God and united to his church, it's like turning the diamond and bouncing the blazing light of God's wisdom off of another facet and directly into the eyes of the evil rulers and authorities in the heavens. And a constant blinding reminder that they've lost. And Christ is one. They were fooled by the wisdom of God. This is according to God's eternal purpose accomplished in Christ. That means that God's plan of redemption wasn't concocted as a last-minute uh, frantic response to the failure of his people. He didn't have to MacGyver his way through it, right? It was his purpose from before the foundation of the world to unfold his plan of redemption over time in his patience, in his sovereignty, in his goodness, and to accomplish it Ultimately, in Christ, he magnified his multifaceted wisdom by keeping parts of this plan hidden until the entirety of it was revealed in Jesus. And we have more to see as we wait for Christ's return. But this was his purpose before all time, and it continues into eternity where time never ends. Paul magnifies God's wisdom one more time in verse 12 by reiterating the beauty of the mystery now revealed. What does he say? Both Jews, Jewish and Gentile believers have boldness and confident access to God through their union with Christ. 
That's why we gather together freely on a Sunday morning and sing and pray and declare his word to one another. It's why you can open your Bible at home and commune with God as you read his word and as you pray to him. It's why we can run freely to him uh, for forgiveness when we sin and not try to hide from him in, in fear. Because Christ has already paid the debt for our sins and we've been reconciled to God once and for all through him. Absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing can prevent our access to him. We are his children and he is our father. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. Paul's review of the glorious benefits of the now revealed mystery of the gospel leads him to make this plea to his Gentile readers as he closes this section the way he began, mentioning his imprisonment on their behalf. Look at verse 13. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. The tone here is, is not just a, a, a polite uh, request. It's an urgent plea. It's a demand even for them not to be discouraged over his afflictions on their behalf. Paul's sufferings because of his gospel ministry to the Gentiles don't compare to the joy he has of seeing the Gentiles come to faith in Christ through the gospel. He tells his readers that his afflictions are, are their glory. And by that he means their eternal life with Christ. His ministry may have resulted in suffering for him, but it resulted in salvation for them. And so Paul will gladly suffer if it means that more people will come to faith in Jesus. He doesn't want his readers to lose heart over his afflictions. He wants them to rejoice in their salvation because his imprisonment cannot break his union together with them in Christ. We ought to rejoice too over the ministry that God gave to Paul because the ministry that God revealed to Paul ultimately led to the ministry of the gospel to us as Gentiles, and our own salvation in Christ. And now that mystery, that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to us, we've been given the ministry of the gospel to share it with others. We now have a part to play in the unfolding redemptive plan of God. He's building his universal church through the gospel ministry of local churches all across the world. And as we share the good news about Christ with others, we show its effects as a united people, not just a bunch of individuals that gather together once on a Sunday morning, but a group of believers who are now united in spirit with one another for all eternity, who share equally in the blessings of Christ together as his body. And we can be confident in the ministry that we've been given because our very existence as a gospel-centered church proves the effectiveness of the gospel itself. Over the last 2,000 years, the gospels continued to spread and shed light for all about the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And we can continue to shed that light for others in confidence that the God who created all things will recreate Many in Christ as they hear the gospel and believe. So then we too can endure whatever afflictions come to us as a result of our gospel ministry because the pain of those afflictions can't compare to the joy of seeing even one person come to faith in Christ and find salvation in him. Like Paul, we too must see ourselves as prisoners of Christ and servants of the gospel. 
but we do so as victors over the rulers and authorities in the heavens who've been thwarted by God's multifaceted wisdom in his unfolding plan of redemption. God is the creator and the accomplisher of his wise plan of salvation. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He'll complete what he started in us. He unfolded this plan in his time and according to his good pleasure, and now he he guides its outworking in the world through his commission to the church, us, to spread the mystery and make it known, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. What God commissioned Paul to make known to the Gentiles, he now commissions the church to make known to the neighbors and the nations. The gospel has come to us, and now it must go through us. Making this mystery known is our mission in 2021. It was our mission in 2020, and God will enable us to accomplish it by the working of his power and through his abundant grace. And because we equally share in the blessings of Christ, we must equally share in the mission of Christ. So let's walk together in the grace and power of God as we proclaim the incalculable riches of Christ to others. And may we grow ever more in awe of God's multifaceted wisdom as he uses us, the least of the least, to carry out his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness in your plan of redemption, we thank you that it doesn't lag behind, it doesn't run ahead of us. In your goodness, in your wisdom, in your sovereignty, you unfold it in your time according to your good pleasure. We pray that we would grow deeper in our awe of the unity that we now have in Christ together that we would grow more convicted and convinced of the mission that we've been given to make this mystery known to others and that we would be both dependent and confident in the God who set it all in place that you will use us in our obedience to you to bring many sons to glory all for your glory and for our good. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.